This is Unconcluded, a real-time investigative podcast looking into the 2006 disappearance of Jennifer Kessie in Orlando, Florida. And today, sidebar, our chance to respond to questions and comments and talk about things that just don't fit into regular episodes. I'm your host, Sean Gerd. And I'm Scott J. To start this show, I'm just going to come out and say that we are not going to have time to get to everything today. Episode 5 brought an enormous amount of feedback with it. And quite frankly, there's a lot of things we still don't have answers to. But as I've said before, the nice thing about this podcast is we can do what needs to be done. So that means that if we don't get a chance to talk about everything that's come up since last episode, and we won't, we can still do that in the coming days and weeks. In episode 5, you heard from Erica, who claims she gave information on a one-bedroom apartment to a distracted or worried Jennifer Kessie at Northbridge Apartments in the week leading up to her disappearance, and then claims that she saw her screaming and being placed into the back of a black four-door car by two men outside that same apartment complex the night before she was reported missing. As you can imagine, with statements like these, There's been a lot of opinions. There are those of you out there who find her statements completely unbelievable. And there are others who think it could be true. And in some of the feedback we've gotten, the reasoning behind those opinions, as different as they are, has been for the same things. We received an email saying that because Erica seemed to struggle to find her words at times, that meant she was lying. And on the very same day, we received a different email And that person said they believed Erica because she seemed to be remembering as she went and wasn't as detailed as the Tennessee witness. Two people, different opinions, for basically the same reason. So our goal here today is to try to clarify some of the things that many of you have been asking. And for the things that we don't get to, we'll continue to respond and answer those over the coming weeks. So let's get to it. Okay, Sean, one of the main things that people keep asking about are the police reports, and that goes for both Lisa and Erica. So what can you tell us about the police reports, knowing that the crime line is anonymous? So there's not going to be anything from those crime line calls, but they did call OPD or the sheriff's office directly. So is there any information that you or Erica or Lisa can give us on police reports related to these incidences? Well, as far as Lisa goes, I don't really have much of an update since the last time I shared. The last I know, Lisa and the detectives have been in touch about the Tennessee events. I don't have any update if that has progressed since that point. Now, as far as Erica's account, you already mentioned that we have no way of verifying crime line tips. And as for the police report that Erica claimed she made the night she saw Jennifer Kessie in the Northbridge Roundabout, unfortunately, so far our efforts have come up empty. In the weeks since episode 5 was released, we've talked again with the records department at the police department, and we've still been unable to give them enough information for them to narrow it down to find the record. So we asked Erica to call herself, and she did. She could provide more personal details that we didn't have. Uh, She claims to have done that and says that they told her she'd have to get in touch with the city of Orlando in order to track down an audio recording of her call. And if this sounds strange to you, don't worry. It sounds strange to us, too. So we did some further checking with the state of Florida, 
and the general record schedule, which basically tells public entities how long they have to hold on to certain types of records. And the general record schedule only requires that complaint slash incident reports, which is the type of report that Erica would have made, they only have to be maintained for four years. So there is a very big possibility that there was a record and it's just no longer there. There's also the chance that the report was never submitted by the responding officer. However, we also have to consider that maybe the report never existed because it was never made. So with all of that, we're still trying to track down the report and we haven't exhausted all of the different avenues that we're looking into. And if we do track it down, we'll make sure we let you know. Now, I can say that Erica is upset with the development. She was already upset that her crime line tip was never followed up on, but this has seemed to really make her angry. So while we continue to try to find that record in the meantime, Unfortunately, I think it's fair that we start to consider Erica's story with some skepticism. Now, I will add that Erica's information has been given to the detectives who are working on Jennifer's case. So if anyone's going to find those records that may or may not exist, it'll be those detectives. So where do we stand? With all of this considered, I'm still not ready to rule it out. It's still something that has to be considered as we move forward in this investigation. We just have to make sure that we weigh it appropriately. Okay, next up, Kristen on the Facebook discussion group brings up a good point. She wants to know if this really puts the nighttime abduction back in the forefront of the theories. I don't know if I'd use the word forefront, because again, we have no confirmation other than the eyewitness statement that this event at Northbridge happened, or was even in fact Jennifer Kessie. But I do think that a few weeks ago, I was leaning pretty heavily towards a morning abduction. And this, along with some other developments I hope to share soon, has made me come off of that position a little bit. So it may not put it to the forefront per se, but it's firmly back on the table. All right, now we have a question from Shayla from Facebook, and she wants to know if Jennifer knew anyone from this area and why she would be over at Northbridge Apartments. This is the million dollar question. If we are going to accept Erica's story, then the only real logical explanation of why Jennifer would be in this particular location at two different times would be that she knew someone who lived or worked there. That's all I can really come up with. Over the last week, there have been several theories that I've seen of why she may have been there, which I hadn't considered. Maybe she felt she was being followed. Maybe she was at the mall. And if you turn left out of the mall instead of right, See, Wright would have taken her back to her condo, so maybe turning left to draw the attention away from where she actually lived, the first place that you would come upon would be Northbridge. But here's my problem with that. If she was being followed by someone she didn't know, or a stalker or something, Rob or her family, or likely both, would have heard about it. I just don't think that that's the case. To me, the only way that we consider the Northbridge story is if we also consider there may have been a side to Jen that her parents and boyfriend didn't really know about. And that's something that's hard to say, because for her parents or boyfriend, it's a hard pill to swallow. Is it likely? Perhaps not. But it's still something that we have to think about. People keep secrets from loved ones all the time, whether it's money problems, work problems, addiction problems, or others. Now, I'm not saying that Jennifer had any of these. My point is, is I don't think we can be quick to rule something out based on what we've heard for the last 11 years, because we're still looking for her. And so at this point, we have to think of everything. 
All right, we have another question from Lana on Facebook, and Lana does not buy Erica's second story about seeing a woman being abducted or forcefully pushed into a car the night of January 23rd, 2006, and she feels like maybe Erica is trying to insert herself into the story. Sean, you've spoken to Erica on numerous occasions. Can you give us any sort of insight to that, and does Lana have reason to maybe believe that? It's possible. Anything's possible. But the story just doesn't make sense to me if that's the case. But I have considered if one of the parts could be fabricated to make the other part seem more important. Like for example, if you saw a girl getting shoved into the back of a car, and you thought that perhaps it could have been Jennifer Kessie, then a story saying that you saw her in your office with her name on a card gives a lot of credibility to that second story, doesn't it? And I think the same thing could go the other way as well. What if Jennifer did come into your office, she did sit down, her name was on the card, but just by itself, that maybe doesn't really seem like too crazy of a situation. But if you add to it the fact that she was shoved into the back of a car, then that certainly gets a lot more attention, doesn't it? So is it possible? Absolutely. Do I think that that's the case? No, I really don't. I've talked to Erica three or four times on the phone and for countless hours on text message. And I just don't get the idea that she's making this up to try to insert herself in this situation. So maybe I'm wrong. And certainly that's a possibility, but I really don't think that that's the case here. I think it's much more likely that certain parts of the story may have been embellished and maybe not even on purpose. For example, maybe there never really was a police report that was filed. I'm not really sure that's all speculation, but in the grand scheme of the entire thing, I just don't think that this was just a matter of someone trying to insert themselves into the investigation. For one thing, it's years later now, are you really still going to be trying to insert yourself 11 years later? This also brings up something else that I wanted to mention on this show today. And people had asked where we found Erica. Basically, we got an email tip asking us if we had seen an old social media post. And that post was by Erica. From there, I was able to track her down. I sent her an unsolicited text message, which she replied to a couple days later. And the rest is history. So we found her. She didn't come looking for us. I don't know if that really makes a difference, but I think to some people, maybe that gives them a little bit of an idea of, about how this came to be. Okay, next question is from Michelle on Facebook. And Michelle wants to know how far away from the car Erica would have been looking out the window of her apartment. Michelle said she finds it strange that she was able to clearly describe clothes, people, the car, etc., when it was dark out and that she had just woken up. So Sean, can you give us some insight uh, or can Erica give us some insight on these questions from Michelle? From Erica's second story window to the place where she says she saw the car and possibly Jennifer is somewhere between 30 and 40 yards, which really isn't that far. Also, thanks to listener Kristen who made a night visit to Northbridge for us, we have a photo of the general area Erica says she saw this event, and it's right underneath a pretty bright street lamp, which provides a lot of light to the surrounding area. There are a lot of reasons that we can question Erica's account, but for me, the distance or the darkness, those just aren't reasons to discount her story. Got a good question here from Jill on the Facebook discussion group. Did Jennifer come out of the driver's seat before the altercation at Northbridge? 
That's a good question that we just don't have the answer to. When Erica first went to their window and looked out after the girl had screamed, the girl was already standing outside the car. So where she came from, the driver's seat, the back seat, the sidewalk, we just don't know. It'd certainly help us answer some questions if we knew, but unfortunately, we don't. All right, Nikki on Facebook wants to know if Erica noticed if the person in the vehicle that was standing outside of the vehicle had any piercings or tattoos. Not that she could see. Again, her recount actually wasn't really super detailed. She could see the person's skin tone. She could see their hair. Uh, she could see kind of what they were wearing, but that's about it. So to answer the question, no, she did not notice any tattoos or piercings. All right, here's another question that has popped up occasionally on the Facebook discussion group. People are wanting to know about Jennifer's phone records and if those were ever released or if there are plans to possibly release those phone records. To answer the first part, no. Jennifer's phone records have never been released. And because this is still an active investigation, they likely won't be. An ongoing investigation doesn't fall within the scope of the Freedom of Information Act. So will they be released? As long as the case is open, I wouldn't expect so. It certainly would be nice to have them, though, because it would answer a lot of the questions that we've been asking. Who did she contact and talk to in the days leading up to her disappearance? At what time did her phone actually go dead? These are answers to a lot of the big questions surrounding the initial time of her disappearance, but we're going to have to do without them for now. Okay, here's a question from Kelly on Facebook. She wants to know if Jennifer's car was processed forensically. Yes, we've already sort of mentioned this before, but after her car was found at the Huntington on the Green, it was towed away and processed by investigators. And based on what we've been told, one latent print and one fiber are the extent of the evidence they were able to pull from the car. They did consider the amount of gas that was in the tank that indicated that it hadn't been driven far, and there was a DVD player strapped into the back seat that seemed to indicate that robbery wasn't a motive. Anything else that's come from the car hasn't been shared with the public. Okay, the next question is from Lana on Facebook, and Lana would like to know if Erica collected any other information from Jennifer the day that she came in to the Northbridge leasing office. According to Erica, yes. A guest card typically would have had the person's name, in addition to their address, contact information, what they were looking for in an apartment, and when they were looking to move. However, when Erica went down to check the card, she was simply looking to confirm the name, so she doesn't really remember what else was on the card. Okay, here's a great question from Caitlin on Facebook. She wants to know if Erica mentioned to the police that she thought that it was Jennifer uh, the night that she witnessed the woman getting pushed around outside of the car at Northbridge, or did she just follow up on the tip line? I actually want to use this question as an opportunity to clarify in general about the calls that Erica says she made to authorities. So when the first event occurred, the interaction at the leasing office, Erica thought it was weird and just kind of put it in the back of her mind and moved on. It was just someone acting strange. Fast forward to Monday night, January 23rd, Erica wakes up to the girl screaming in the car situation, and according to her, she then calls the police to report the issue. At this point in time, she's not putting the two events together. So of course, Jennifer's name isn't part of any possible police report. She did say that the girl looked familiar, but she really wasn't connecting it in her mind. Then two days later, when she sees Jennifer Kessie on the news, 
It's her last name, Cassie, that was memorable. And that's when she runs down to the office to check the name. Now, after she realizes, then she starts to think that maybe that event I saw on Monday night is connected. And she remembers the girl and starts to say, you know what, that girl did look just like Jennifer. So it's at this time that she calls the tip line to report what she saw with Jennifer's name now attached to the event. Okay, now we're going to move over to the voicemail line, and we have a message from Jill. Hi, Sean and Scott. This is Jill calling. Um, I've been following this case since I first saw it on TV Undiscovered, I don't know, maybe two months ago, and then I found your podcast, which is so excellent. Um, I was wondering if you could comment on... I know I've asked you on, on, the, on your website before. What do you think of her conclusions and her suggestions um, as to what happened to Jennifer? Um, she seemed to think she, this was going to be solved uh, two years ago or a year ago, and, and nothing else has been posted since then. I'm just wondering what you think about her theories and her conclusions. Um, I wonder if that plays into anything that you guys are looking into. Okay, thank you. Bye. Before you check to make sure your audio player isn't skipping, Don't worry, it's not. I actually decided to cut the name of the website out that Jill's referencing here. For those of you who have looked into this case online, or for those of you who have been looking into this case for years, you already know what website Jill is referring to. For those of you that don't, it's a website that claims to investigate different crimes and then publishes its findings on their site. Typically, in my opinion, these findings are sensational and shocking, and that's certainly the case for Jennifer's investigation as well. It's not hard to think about why these types of findings would be of interest to a website. If you'd like to see what I'm talking about, this particular website, it's pretty easy to find. There are several reasons that I'm choosing to withhold the specifics of this website for this podcast. And I've been putting off answering this specific question for a while now. But it's time to respond. My simple answer is this. I'm aware of this person and website, and I'm very aware of the claims that have been made regarding this case. I also know that at one point Drew Kessie was somewhat participating in the investigation the website did. But this podcast will use information there the same way that we are using information from any witness or tipster that we're talking to. Something to be considered, to be investigated, but definitely not taken as fact. I think there are things that are in that investigation that are true, but I also know that there are some things that aren't. So the reason I'm choosing to answer the question this week is because next episode, we're going to be talking about possible suspects in this case, one of which has been more or less named the prime suspect by this particular website. So to answer your question, Jill, yes, we're aware of it. Yes, we're going to continue looking into it. But we're also very careful about what we accept as fact. One last thing I want to talk about before we go today is the picture that I mentioned at the end of episode 5. Many of you were left thinking that we knew who that person was, and I just want to say that is not the case. The person in that photo is unknown to us. We don't know who it is, or if it's actually even the person that Erica saw. The point I meant to convey at the end of last episode is that we are going to continue to look into that photo and try to determine not only who it is, but where it came from, and who else is in the photo. There's a total of three people. Because at this point in time, we've been able to do none of those things. But after talking with Erica more about it, 
she's not even sure this person, 100%, is the person she saw. So with that in mind, the picture doesn't even really mean much anymore. In the meantime, we've been showing Erica other photos of people we do know, and we will share those findings next episode. Don't forget that you are part of what Unconcluded is doing. Keep thinking, keep talking, and keep sharing. This podcast has made great strides in the awareness for Jennifer's case, and we want to keep that going. Subscribing and leaving a positive review on iTunes is just one way you can help do that. Also, don't forget to join the conversation on the Unconcluded Podcast discussion group on Facebook. And check us out on Patreon if you're interested in supporting the show. A huge shout out to our Patreon supporters. Shannon, Caroline, Lena, April and Christy, Bethany, Morgan, Jordan, Connie and Karen, and Kathy, Sam, Megan and Catherine. Thank you guys so much for supporting and taking part in what we're doing. We'll be back next week with episode 6 and possibly before then with another bonus episode. And as we head on out of here, I'm going to leave you with another podcast suggestion for True Crime Obsessed. Check out their promo, and we'll see you next time. Hey there, I'm Patrick Hines. And I'm Julian Pensavalli. And we are the hosts of a new podcast called True Crime Obsessed. Each week, we break down a popular true crime documentary like The Keepers or Mommy, Dead, and Dearest, and we chat about it in a fun and interesting way. We also have a ton of fun, and let's be real, we edit the hell out of our episodes. Well, Patrick does. So Patrick, play a clip of us being funny or something. And at one point, she's like, who am I to tell this family that they're not related? And I'm like, you're the FBI, Nancy. That's who you are. Like, if anyone has any right to tell these people that I'm so sorry to tell you this, but this is a, like, he's a, a mass imposter who's been who's wanted by Interpol and who does this on the regular like you Nancy just tell them Joe Maskell looks like one of the many sketches of the Zodiac Killer which is totally appropriate have we ever seen the two of them in the same room together (gasps) did we just solve the Zodiac case I think we did we didn't even mean to oh my god so if you're serious about true crime but you also love to laugh give us a try find true crime obsessed anywhere you get your podcasts